Revelation chapter 18. We're going to look at two passages as we have been doing for these last few weeks. 18 verses 1 through 7, and then we'll read yet again this glorious passage, chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. Revelation 18, verses 1 through 7. Put your finger on chapter 21. We'll go there right afterwards. This is the Word of God. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, She'll be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. I guess that was verse 8. Please turn to chapter 21. So in contrast to the city of Babylon, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Let me pray for today's message. Lord, I'm going to talk about something very important today. It's a big topic, topic of marriage, but I pray that you'd help me to stay focused, to say only the things that are really needed. And the words that I have to share today, that they would really resonate. They would resonate in people's hearts. and People would feel convicted and know that they are the truth from your scriptures. They are a blessing from you. In Jesus' name. We've been going through a series on what does the kingdom of God look like as it is touched by the resurrection that I've called the resurrection kingdom. And you know, to, for you to begin to see yourself in these stories, in these passages, 
Are you of the city of Babylon? Are you of the city of man and of the heart and of the spirit of the city of Babylon? Or do you see that yourself as a member of this city, this city which is to come, this city which is very real, what this stuff is saying in chapter 21, this will happen. It's an absolute guarantee it will happen. But your citizenship from that doesn't happen then. It already begins now. Do you belong to one city or the other? And if you belong to his kingdom, it, it has great implications for how you live your life, in not just then, but in the here and the now. And we've been looking at certain portions of those implications. We've talked about work. We talked about pleasure. Last week we talked about the specific pleasure that is probably the most disordered in our society, that is the issue of sex. And today I want to talk about how this passage, this passage there is a vision and understanding of marriage and particularly marriage's place in the city. Now, um, you know, I'm, I've, give, I've given a whole marriage series, and I'm not going to repeat the, the, um, all those points. So if you want to have like practical marriage issues and stuff like that, you can, you know, you, you can go to those sermons that I gave about three years ago. Um, but today what I'd like to talk about is just the, the meaning of marriage and particularly how our, in our society we have a very deep problem. We have a very great sin problem that corrupts even our understanding of marriage and then our approach to marriage and then our desires about who we are as both single people and as married people. And so I've entitled this message Autonomy, Marriage, and Community. Autonomy, Marriage, and Community. Because the way those concepts are are brought together in our minds, I mean, we don't know how to bring these things together. What does it mean to have autonomy? What is marriage? And then we have this great deep longing for community, but in our culture, it's not working. It's very broken. And so... I would like to talk about this in three points. Number one, the issue of autonomy. Autonomy, or what I've sometimes called autonomos, and how it affects our understanding of marriage. So I'm going to talk about in the first part of our message. Second, I'm going to talk about what is the Bible's vision and understanding of marriage. And third, I'm going to talk about how, how the gospel gives us power for a new kind of community. Okay? How the, boss, the gospel gives us power for a renewed kind of community. I would like to go to, um, go to chapter 18 in the text. Know what it says. I think this is such an extraordinary thing it says. Chapter 18, verse 7. Autonomy. Autonomy. Now, if you just understand, it just, it just means I, you know, I run myself. Autonomy means literally, it, it's from the two Greek words, auto means self, and nomos, which means law or rule. Autonomy is just one word which brought up by two old words. It just means I rule myself. And if you have autonomy, that means nobody controls you, not your parents, not your boss, you. You get to control yourself. And in and of itself, it's not necessarily a bad thing because in one sense or another, we're all trying to raise our children to have a certain good form of autonomy, but in our culture, autonomy has just completely run amok. I would say that in our society, we worship autonomy. It isn't just a good thing that we want to have as adults, but we think this is the absolute central thing that we have to have, 
that will make our life good. Now, look at this in verse 7. This is the spirit. This is the voice of the Babylonian city, of the city of man. It says, she, that is she, the city, those of her, glorifies herself and living in luxury. Of course, you can't glorify yourself living in poverty, right? And, and then it goes on to say, in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen. <laughs> I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. And in that little sentence, I think this is, this is the heart of the city of man. This is how we think in America. I, I, I rule my own life. I'm like a queen. Now, and this is, you know, the, we're talking, you know, the, the, the Bible has feminized the city. But the heart is this. I don't need somebody else. In this case, I'm a queen and I am no widow. I don't need a husband. And this, and the, biblically, it's talking about how the city needs a Lord. The Lord who is her husband. And this is the, 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 the ultimate biblical completion of the, of God's will for his community. But in here, there's also this understanding of really a critique of autonomy. Now, to show you how, how, uh, I think in our society, I've, you, some of you have been in this church for a while, you know that I, I've, I've said this. The real religion of our society is not Christianity, and I wouldn't even call it quite atheism, because atheism doesn't seem like a religion. Like, there's no God out there. How can you even call that a religion? There's nobody. Everybody has to have somebody that they follow and they serve. That's the way it works. The human heart is wired to serve and obey something greater than itself. And in our society, the God that you want to follow and serve is you. <laughs> right? And so you think you can be your own Lord, you can be your own master, you can come up with your own laws and the own meaning of your life. And to show you how deep this is, in 1992, in 1992, a case went to the Supreme Court a very famous and controversial case and there's a clause that came out of the line in the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court, members of the Supreme Court actually said this. The case was Planned Parenthood versus Casey and the, and the controversy was about, about abortion. But I'm not even talking about abortion today. I'm talking about why the court said that we can't get rid of, you know, why we can't change this law. And it came down to this thing. There's a, there's a famous line that came out of this court says, and this is what was actually written. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. That's what our highest court said. Our highest court said that what we really need, if we're really going to be, have liberty, real freedom is, you get to define your own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe. You get, to, you get to define your own concept of the universe and of the mystery of human life. And some people who really deeply disagree with this have mocked this and called this all oh, the sweet mystery of life passage. Right? You know what? A lot of people believe this. For somebody... For one of our Supreme Court justices to actually write this, imagine how deep this is in our culture, that people will actually write this and enshrine this as one of the pieces of our laws that, that now define our case, our case law structure within. This was written by the Supreme Court. 
And this is in your mind. It's in your mind. It's in your mind. It's in your heart. And this approaches, it, this is, it, 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 it touches upon so many things of our life. And particularly what I'd like to talk about is how does, if we are infected so much with me, the meanness of life, how does it affect how we look at marriage? And in a nutshell, it, it affects marriage horribly. <laughs> really what it does is it poisons it. If you believe that you are at the center of your own life and that you have the right to shape your own life and that your life is yours and that autonomy is what you are, it just infects everything, it is going to poison the well of how you think about marriage. And this isn't just whether you're married right now. This It will poison you well before you even get to marriage. You will be poisoned. You'll be poisoned by the time you're 13, 12, 13, 14 years old. By the time you got the whole education system and you've been trained in autonomy, by the time you think you want to get married, you will already be so deeply broken and you'll be almost unfit for marriage. That's what's happening in our society. You know why marriages are breaking down in our society? Because we're training Babylonians to be really horrible husbands and wives. And many of you who are still single, who've gone through multiple broken bro- boyfriend, girlfriends, or whatever, you know, we even call it today, significant others, right? Um, you're starting to experience this firsthand, the brokenness of autonomy, even within your own heart. Um, I've, t- I've talked about her in the past. I want, I want to cite her again today. Uh, there, was a, there was a famous article written by a woman named Lori Gottlieb. And she wrote this famous article in the Atlantic magazine. I, I like to read the Atlantic. Some of the, the articles are kind of long, but, but they're really well written. And she wrote this piece called, Marry Him! <laughs> right? And what she was saying is she's, I think, I think about 40 years old. She has a child, which she uh, deliberately decided to have. She said, before I can no longer have babies, I, gotta have a, I, 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 I always wanted to be a mother, so then she got, you know, she went through artificial insemination. She had her own child. So now she's a single mom, about 40 years old. And you know what she longs for? She longs for a husband. And she wrote this fantastic piece. And you can look it up. It's a very famous piece called Marry Him. And what she's doing is she is berating all the people of her peers, of her generation, and I'm, I'm about her generation, and younger who are saying, all of you who are looking for the perfect person, what you need to find is not Mr. Right, but Mr. Good Enough. And she says that she looked around her life, she's like, I envy all my friends who may complain about their husbands, but they have a man and they have a good man. They have a good man and I wish I had a good man. Instead of giving up the boyfriends that I had who were good, but for one reason or another, I chipped away at them and I didn't consider them good enough because they weren't Mr. Right. And so she wrote this article about this. And then later on, this was such a huge hit that she ended up writing a whole book about this. And I read this book. I read the article. I enjoyed the article so much that I actually got the book. And in the book, she has a chapter. She has a chapter where she talks about something that I think is so helpful. Right? She talks about this concept that sociologists have come up with. So she read this, you know, the sociological studies in these chapters. And she says that people, when they go about shopping, because this is what we think we're doing, right? 
It's about me. We think we're shopping for a man or a woman. When they go about shopping, what they got to get is they have to get something good for me. It's because life is about you, right? And if you're going to shop for the one thing that you can't ever return, because you're not supposed to return because, you know, divorce will be terrible, right? Then it's got to be just perfect. And so she talks about the people who have to get absolute maximum value out of out of what they go out and shop for, and they call this, she calls those maximizers. And, or there's a set of people who go and find the thing that they're looking for, but, and they find something good, but they don't have to get absolutely every single penny's worth. They call, she calls those satisficers. And so are you the kind of person, so I remember the portion of the book, are you the kind of person that goes to the store, and then find a sweater, and you're like, hey, this sweater is good, and it's for a good price, and then you buy it. Then if you are, then you're a satisficer. And then you go home and you're happy with your purchase. Or are you the person that says, hey, I, I know across town I can get this thing for $2 less. And so you have to kind of put your, you put the sweater away so that nobody else can take it. And then you have to go, go, go across town to see if it's $2. Oh, it's not there, but it's not my size. So I have to go back to the other, I have to go back to the original store to go get the one that you hid, right? And so are you the kind of person that thinks like this? If you are, you're a maximizer. But according to Glory Gottlieb, if you approach marriage or trying to find a husband or a wife in this kind of matter, this is toxic. That's what she put it. She called it a toxic maximizer. She called herself that. And as she's talking in this book, she, she starts talking about her own experience. And she gets, um, she gets a person that's a matchmaker, and this person is essentially a kind of dating coach. And what she finds out in this whole process, this dating coach tries to like help her set up her, set herself up with people that are potentially good matches for her. And what she begins to find out about herself is that she is tremendously selfish. She finds out, I'm a toxic maximizer. And guess what? It's even worse. I am attracted to other people that I, I want a certain perfection in my man. But guess what? If you find, actually find the person who's kind of perfect the way you think is perfect, guess what? They like perfect too. So what she found out is that she's very selfish and she is a toxic maximizer. And then, but even worse, she is attracted to toxic maximizers. So what she realized, she, she began to then, then do a kind of like rewind and started to think about the boyfriend she'd had in her past. And she realized that this boyfriend that I thought was so great, the reason he dumped me is because he was a toxic maximizer and I wasn't perfect enough for him. This is what's going on in our culture. Can you guys relate? Whether you are single or whether you're married, before, if those of you who are married, come on, do many of you think of it this way? I bet you there's tons of people who got married they think they got the best deal on the person that they got married. And then after they got married, they start having deep problems. And then about a year or two or five years later, they're fighting. And, and they're angry and they're disappointed. Why? Because the deal that they thought they were getting wasn't good enough. Toxic maximizer. Let me tell you um, uh, a, a, a little story a friend of mine I have a dear friend of mine who um, tragically passed away. He's a, he's a pastor. His name is Kenny. And Kenny is one of my 
was was one of my close buddy friends, and I could talk to him about pretty much darn near anything. I could talk to him about my sins. I could talk to him about ministry problems, and I I, I dearly miss him. Right? But Kenny was he was actually a couple years older than me, and he died um, was it just about two years ago? So he died in his early forties in a tragic bus accident in a child in a, in a car accident. But Kenny um, Kenny was single. And the fact that he was about in his early 40s and was single was painful to him. It was very hard for him. And Kenny would talk about his relationships. And he had a couple of really serious girlfriends, that he, both of which he almost, almost married. And both those relationships broke up. And Kenny was so honest and so self-aware. I mean, this guy... Kenny was kind of scary. He, he could, you could hang out with him, and he could figure out your sins and your deep, dark desires. Okay, that it's one of the, his powers that made him a really good pastor. I mean, and if you didn't know this about him, you know, you would just hang out with him. But after you know this about him, he makes you a little nervous, actually. Right? You're like, darn it, this guy. Am I, no, no point, you know, hiding anything with Kenny because he's going to probably look into my heart and know my evil things anyway. So I'll just tell him. All right? <laughs> I'll just tell him, and and, and and then we can go to Jesus together. All right? This is what Kenny was like, and I don't know if you want a friend like that. I had a friend like that. Actually, when you're when you have a friend like that, and you're safe with a friend like that. And he always takes you to Jesus. It's really great. It's fantastic. Um, But Kenny would do this to himself. He would shine the light of his insight onto his own heart. (laughs) And this, and he would, and he's brutal, including on himself. And he realized that, that, you know, he actually looked at his girlfriends and he, he realized that they were kind of slim and athletic. And this is the kind of woman he had to have. And that if he met a woman and she wasn't, she didn't have a certain kind of slim athletic build, he didn't want to keep dating her because he didn't want her to end up becoming his wife. And then he, and then he started thinking about why is that? Why am I shallow like that? Why do I need that? And he couldn't just push it off. And so he actually started to think this through. And you know what? He realized this is incredible. Kenny, to give you an idea what Kenny was like, Kenny was about 300 pounds. And when he was younger, he was athletic. He probably could have been a linebacker or an offensive lineman. And he used to play, actually play on his high school football team. But, you know, as he grew a little older, he grew a little softer. And, you know, when I'd give Kenny a hug, there, there was a lot to hug, okay? And, um, and Kenny was, I don't know if you guys are probably too young, he, he was actually built like Fred Flintstone, and his email address was literally Flintstone, okay? And what he realized is he actually wanted a slim wife, because he felt that if he had got a pudgy wife, that people would just think, oh, he's a fat guy and he could never marry anybody except someone else who's also fat. Deep down, he realized that in his heart that he had this profound selfish need or a longing, if not even true, to make his wife validate his self-worth. That's what he wanted. And if he didn't have, if he didn't pick a woman like this, that he wouldn't feel good about himself and couldn't like feel like he got the best deal and married her. See, even Kenny realizes the way he actually figured out the toxic way he was a maximizer, and he realized this is part of the reason that kept him from getting married. 
And he was wrestling with this so that he could place this at the heart of Jesus and he could go get married. And I'm sad for my, my, my friend Kenny that, that he passed away before he got married. I really wanted to be at his wedding. Knowing all this, <laughs> knowing all this, it would have been an absolutely glorious thing to be at his wedding. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad that he's with Jesus now. Now, I'm sharing all these things with you. Any of you guys like Kenny? Any of you guys like Kenny? Whether you're married or single, we got problems. We're really selfish people. It's not, I'm not just saying that in some light way. I mean, it's deep. Your selfishness runs deep right down to your heart's desires. Let me talk about Point number two, what is the Bible's vision of marriage? The Bible's vision of marriage. If you go to chapter 21, it says that the city comes down as a bride adorned for her husband. And who is her husband? Her husband is Jesus, is the Lord. So that the Lord, the Lord Jesus, comes. He comes to give himself to his bride, and let me tell you, his bride is not a prize. <laughs> because his bride is us. His bride are sinful people who are profoundly broken with toxic maximizer selfishness. <laughs> That's us. And he comes to come into us, to sacrificially give himself to us, and to unite himself to the one who is his beloved. That's the Bible's picture of marriage. Not the one who will make me all, all good and feel good about myself. My life is mine. And I know what my perfect life is about and I know what my needs are and I know what I want. And then if I just get this person, this person will make me happy. That's the way we selfish Babylonians think. But those in the city of Jerusalem, they learn what marriage is from he who is the bridegroom to the city. He who is the Lord, he who sacrificially lays his heart down, not to be served, but so that he would pour himself out to the blessing of he who he, his beloved, and then actually make himself, unites himself into her so that he dwells in the city. I told you last week that was a, that was a, a theology of marriage in, the, in those verses, but it's also, I mean, a theology of sex in those verses, it's a theology of marriage. And the Bible has a phrase. It says, a man shall leave his mother and father and will unite himself, will cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's a profound understanding. What is the Bible's understanding of marriage? One flesh. It doesn't mean one lump of, like, meat. <laughs> it means that your soul, your heart, your minds would become where you were two before, two individual, autonomous individuals. I'm me. And then there's another autonomous individual will come together on that marriage day. They will unite. And the pastor will say, what God has brought together, let no man separate. And they become one flesh. And for the rest of your life, what you're beginning to learn is to lay your heart's desires down for the sake of the other person. What you're learning is to lay your selfishness down, to lay your wickedness down, to find your fullness and completion in 
the one who is the other person. That's what marriage really is. And if you think about that, that you don't lose yourself, but you actually gain yourself. You don't get lost in your marriage, but you actually become fuller because someone else fills you. And so you become filled by learning how to give yourself into someone else. That's the Bible's vision of marriage. And it's tremendously beautiful. But in our society today, I remember listening years ago, as I first listened to Tim Keller talk about marriage in his marriage series, Pastor Tim Keller, he said that what he perceives in our culture is at once a great desire for marriage because the thing itself is beautiful. And we know that if I will... I will love you so much that I'll commit myself my whole life to you and I'll never forsake you until death do we part and in sickness and in health. We want to say these words and we want someone else to be willing to go through these words and give these vows and be with us. So there's a tremendous desire for marriage. So even in our society, which is very post-Christian, and people just are just thinking of defining marriage on their own terms, yet they still know that this what this is, you know what this is? This understanding being united to someone is a profound understanding of community. That you're not going to just be by yourself. Autonomy, I run my own life. That this in itself, you're like, it's great. I get to rule myself. But you know what the cost of that is? The cost is loneliness. You are alone. Nobody be with you. You have nobody to serve. Nobody will walk with you. You have nobody to deeply embrace and be embraced by. The cost of autonomy is loneliness. So there's a tremendous, tremendous longing for this deep well of community that we call marriage. And I don't know if you ever thought about it that way. Marriage is the ultimate, is the ultimate brick of having deep hum- human community. So that the, one of the reasons in our society that we long for community is because we live in a country full of tremendously lonely people. They're all lonely because they're all selfish. They're all selfish because they're all running autonomy. They all worship autonomy. And so we have all these atomistic, autonomous individuals who are tremendously lonely. They have great longing for community. And then that's the, hence they have great longing for marriage. Yet, and then Tim Keller said, great longing for marriage, desire. And then he called it an over-desire. And then at the same time, a great fear of marriage. A great fear. We have great fear because we're, we're not sure if we're going to pick the right person. We're not sure if that person won't love us back. We're not sure that person won't leave us. And if you were to give your heart to somebody so ultimately that you can't leave this person, and if this person were to say, I can't live with you anymore. You're not good enough for me. I, I don't love you. I don't know if I ever loved you. I have to leave. You're afraid. You have tremendous fear. And justifiably so. I don't know. Can I go into that? So you're, we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. We, we long for community and someone else to be there. And Yet, we're afraid and we want to run our own life and we have our own selfish, toxic, maximizer desires. This is where we are in our society. Talk to anybody you know. And next time you watch a movie, watch this interplay. Next time you watch some, some funny romantic comedy, which is supposed to be sweet, all you guys out there, you're like, oh, my girlfriend made me go to this chick flick that I hate, right? I want you to think about what I'm saying right now. 
Just watch the drama unfurling on the screen. It's this great desire and great fear all wrapped up together. And the whole movie has this tension. Will they meet and will it work? Let me talk about, let me go to the final portion of my message now. Let me talk about the gospel. Um, you know, the gospel. You, you guys hear me talk about the gospel all the time. Jesus. The gospel, the good news is taking you to Jesus. You go, this is going to help me? It absolutely is going to help you. Before I, I get to that, though, let me tell you a little picture of kind of how it tends to work. Um, you guys have any seen, ever, ever seen the movie Jerry Maguire? Many of you guys heard me. Some of you guys heard me cite. And I'm going to talk about the portion of the movie that I haven't talked about yet, you know, as a pastor here. It's one of my favorite movies. It's one of my favorite movies of the last, whatever, I don't know, 10, 15 years or so. I, I think it's probably, I still think it's Tom Cruise's best movie. It's probably his best movie. I think he involves movies. Yeah, it's probably his best movie. I, I can't think of a better one, right? And... There's a lot of parts of the, movies that I, the, of the movie that I like. But one of the reasons why I like that movie, it, of course, the, the writer who, 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 did, who came up with this movie doesn't know this. Okay? He's probably, but in a, in a way, the movie has a kind of gospel movement. <laughs> There's a kind of untold gospel story in this. It doesn't explicitly talk about Jesus. But the, if you, those of you who haven't seen the movie, Jerry Maguire, Tom Cruise plays this character named Jerry Maguire. He's a highly successful sports agent. He's constantly always hobnobbing around rich and extremely talented, successful, um, high-priced athletes, and he's constantly making deals, 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 right? And he's always got to get after the, the best and the brightest, and he's extremely good at his job. He's right at the peak of his profession. Okay. And, but in the movie, there is this tension. He has a problem. And the problem is that he was going, and early in the movie, he's going to marry his fiance. He has his longtime girlfriend, and he's going to marry his fiance, and she is hot. Okay? She is gorgeous, she's tall, she's voluptuous, everything. Okay? And so here he is, Mr. Perfect Guy, always hanging out with perfect body athletes, lots of money, and now going to marry Miss Perfect. Except, you know, there's this thing that, that talks about that Jerry, well, Jerry has issues with intimacy. And right around this time, Jerry has this great kind of awakening about how he approaches his job and how he always approaches his job only with money at stake because one of his athletes, he lets his athlete go through a kind of what is a, essentially a life-threatening injury and, he, and his conscience starts to bother him because our whole industry only deals with the money and we just spit out all these athletes. And he has this whole conscience... His conscience is struck and he writes this document and he ends up throwing away his whole career. Because he wants to do his work the right way, he sacrifices his career. And then you know what happens? His girlfriend dumps him. His girlfriend dumps him. But then, he's this needy guy. He can't be without a girlfriend. So what it says in the movie is, he, Jerry has intimacy issues. He always has to have somebody but he doesn't know how to be really close to this person. That's what the movie, it's, that's what it's talking about. You think the movie is only talking about money and how to be successful with money and who's gonna, and who are all the pretty people. But actually one of the central dramas in this movie is that Jerry, 
he, the way he puts it is, when he, when, he, when he ultimately marries somebody, and then they're having marital problems, and then she says, I want you. So then later in the movie, he's this needy guy. He has this very impetuous marriage. He marries this woman who is not as hot as his first, has his previous girlfriend, but she's really sweet. And she really gets him. And she really gets his desires to want to do his job in a righteous manner. And she admires that. And she falls in love with him. And her name is Dorothy. So Jerry marries Dorothy in this crazy, impetuous marriage. She's a single mom. But then as they're married, she starts to complain. You don't know how to give yourself to me. Where, where are you? How come you don't love me? You love, it's, it's, it's interesting. He's actually a pretty good dad. <laughs> he loves her kid. But he doesn't know how to love her. And then when she starts to complain, she says to him, you know, like, what's going on? And he says, what if I'm not wired that way? That's his excuse. <laughs> what if I'm not wired that way? I, I, I don't know how to do intimacy. I know how to go into the living room and get the trust of the, of the father and of the athletes. I, I'm, dude, I'm good at that way. But, but intim- I, I, I don't know how to do intimacy. And so you know what happened? Their marriage is on the brink of failure. They separate. They separate over this. And their marriage is on the brink of failure. So, this is all happening. You're watching this movie. And then Jerry has this thing. He's trying to pursue his career. He's, he's totally down the dumps. He's, he's almost a total loser. His career is almost about a failure. He has only one client left. And he starts to learn from this client. His one, this, it's a football player named Rod Tidwell, played by Cuba Gooding Jr. I mean, this, that, that, that role totally made his career, okay? And he starts learning from Rod, because Rod has a good marriage. And he sees Rod's relationship with his wife, and he actually sees how they serve each other, and how they meet each other. And it's not like Rod's career is going really well, they have problems. But as they walk together in their problems, Rod essentially becomes kind of Jerry's mentor, or let me put it in slightly more spiritual terms, his discipler. <laughs> Rod becomes Jerry's discipler and shows him a deeper righteousness of how to do intimacy and how to lay his heart down and love his wife. He would, they would talk about, Jerry would talk to Rod about football. Rod would turn and says, how's your marriage? How's your marriage? And then there's this one night when Rod has a great night and, and Jerry knows this is going to absolutely turn the corner of his career and his wife was alongside of him and in the new way that he was going to do his career. But at this point, he's separated. So, spoiler alert here, okay? <laughs> spoiler alert. Jerry has this great kind of revelation. And he runs home. He runs to... His wife, he'd been separated from her, remember? He runs to his wife, who's now living with her sister, actually. And then he pursues her and wins her back. And then he says the great line, you complete me. (laughs) You complete me. That's what he says, right? And and the movie ends happily because, you know, they, they become one flesh. That's what happens. They become one flesh. And why is this a gospel type of story? I mean, they don't talk about Jesus in the movie. Because this is kind of often the way it has to happen. 
what has to happen is you gotta fail. <laughs> you have to you have to get down the dumps. You have to become broken up. Because only when you get to the bottom and you become a total loser and you've broken it up, because that's what has to happen to Jerry. Jerry has to get to the bottom. Only then does all his selfish maximizer stuff start to dissipate. And then he could be remade into a new kind of person. Because the only way you can actually learn how to have real, this is why our culture doesn't under, why we have so many dysfunctional marriages in our society, and we have so many single people who don't know how to be married, and so profoundly afraid to get married. Because what you really need in order to really be married to somebody else and for it to be really good, is you have to die. You're selfish, me, autonomous, it's gotta be about me, that person has to die. That person has to go away. And then a new person has to arise who can actually look at that other person and see how this person comes alongside of me. How I am blessed by this person even though I don't get all the things that I thought I needed. <laughs> That's what has to happen. It's just that in this movie, this movie doesn't quite fully understand that for that process to fully happen is you need somebody to be there for you when you die. <laughs> and that person can't just be your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or your girlfriend. That person has to be so great that person could take you through the death. Because when you let all your selfish, like idolatrous dreams about your life, you put that on, you, you lay that down and you, let, you allow that to die, you know what it feels? It's so hard. You know why? Because you feel like you're dying. <laughs> you feel like you're dying. And you won't want to go there unless somebody will come alongside of you and can take you through that death and, on the, and promise to you on the other side, you will live. I promise you, you will live. And you'll be new. And there'll be a new life. And there's only one person that can take you through that. And that's Jesus. And that's why if you're going to really become fit for marriage, and I'm talking whether you're marriage or uh, single, you still need Jesus. It's always still going to be Jesus. And you need a very profound story. That story is not the story of your little selfish life, the story of Jesus coming in to take you and say, it's okay, die with me because you'll rise with me. And you'll become a new person and your marriage will be good. Trust me, your marriage will be good. You know, this, this message is not, I know, not an easy message for everybody to hear. There are people who are single and you've gone through painful things. Some of you are married and you've gone through very painful things. I've, I've been there in my own marriage. You know, when Grace and I were, we had some serious problems early in our marriage, right? And then, of course, some of you who may be single because you're divorced or people who experience divorce, and so you know this. And I hope, you know, that what you hear is this last part. Not all the all problems, because many of you guys know the problems. I'm just diagnosing the problems well. But really, it's not a cheap thing. It's Jesus, it's his story. That's who he is. 
to renew you at the core of who you are. Please go to Jesus. So that we'll have this beautiful community and people see, wow, in this church, the marriages are good. What happened here? The people are joyful. There's something else going on here. Let's pray. Lord, we have great mercy and grace upon us, upon your people today, upon broken singles. Will you give repentance to husbands and wives who are stewing in selfish coldness in their marriage, Lord? Constantly trying to fix the other person to make that person molded into the image of what they always wanted as opposed to really learning how to lay themselves down. And Lord, I pray, I pray for people who have been divorced. Pray for the children of parents who have been divorced. Will you heal our city with your grace. Will you teach us a new form of community, real community, which can only come from you, Jesus. May we go to you. Will you bind up our wounds? Will you heal us? Will you give us good husbands and wives? Will you put profound and beautiful community into our church? In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond to the Lord.